Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 1st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I'm going to talk about true Christian communion. Earlier this summer, on our recent five-week trip, I was invited to give an opinion of Christian communion at a Wednesday Bible study, not the one in Naples. Some members of a certain church, which is dear to us, dear to us, I'm sorry, had a long-standing division over the practice of communion, meaning ritual communion, as it is traditionally conducted in denominational churches, and whether it should be continued, and how it should be continued in a true Christian church. I spent nearly an hour, I think, giving my opinion on the matter. I believe I had promised to talk for 20 minutes or something like that. I should have recorded it, and then I would just have to play the recording tonight. I'd have a night off. But I didn't. I, I it didn't. I didn't even really think to record it. But this presentation will be based on the outline notes which I had made for that evening's talk. We all, and when I say we, of course I mean identity Christians, right? Because anybody listening to my podcast should be um, at least wanting to become acquainted with Christian identity, we all have backgrounds in one denomination or another, one mainstream belief system or another. And upon discovering our Christian identity, we now understand to, that, that those belief systems of our past were based on false paradigms when compared to scripture and history. But we also all have some degree of what I can really only describe as baggage. While after we had come to the truth, we should realize that we must cast away much of what we upheld in our former walk. There are almost always some things which we maintain to which we have some emotional tie, things which we liked or things which made us feel good and which we have a desire to hold on to. Sometimes we simply take it for granted that we are supposed to be doing those things, things like water baptism, which we'll talk about tonight, which are supported by vague and incomplete understandings of certain scriptures. And, therefore, we insist that we keep on doing them. But these things are often the traditions of men, or even Old Testament rituals that we have not let go of, and which are obscure to us because of the translations which have been made by the professional priests, and because of the language, or even cultural barriers between us 
the original texts. We do things because we think we should do them, because we've always done them. So we keep doing them, and we defend them. But the truth is that if we have baggage, then we have not come to the truth with a clean slate. As Christ said, one must have a mind like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Little child, a little child, as Clifton Emmeheiser once put it, has no presuppositions, no false presumptions. Often we fail to clean the slate out of our own ignorance. And often we fail to clean the slate out of our own desires to maintain our tradition simply because there are things which we like and we have always done them, so we insist on continuing them. And we find excuses in Scripture to continue them. Tonight we are going to take an issue with some of these so-called traditions of men in comparison with Scripture. Here is the Wikipedia definition of what is called communion in, not in the Bible, in the denominational churches. And I quote, because it's a fair definition, and we're going to quote Wikipedia a couple of times right here in relation to this, the Eucharist, also called Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper and other names, is a rite, the Eucharist is a rite, R-I-T-E, considered by most Christian churches to be a sacrament. According to some New Testament books, I'm still quoting Wikipedia, it was instituted by Jesus Christ during his Last Supper, giving his disciples bread and wine during the Passover meal, Jesus commanded his followers to do this in memory of me while referring to the bread as my body and the wine as my blood, meaning the body and blood of Christ. Through the Eucharist celebration, Christians remember Christ's sacrifice of himself once and for all on the cross. And of course, these Eucharist celebrations are performed in the church by a priest. The word rite is just a synonym for the word ritual, and Wikipedia defines both words together as describing an established ceremonial, usually religious act to work. Wikipedia defines a sacrament as a Christian rite recognized as of particular importance and significance. There are various views on the existence and meaning of such rites or rituals. The Catechism of the Catholic Church defines sacraments as efficacious, efficacious meaning they have efficacy in, in reality, efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us is an antelope of horseshit. The visible rites 
continuing to quote Wikipedia. They didn't say anything about horseshit. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. In other words, you're going to have some trained Catholic priest and be stuffing money in an envelope. The catechism included in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer defines a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself, as a means whereby we receive the same. As a means whereby. So we receive the grace through the sacrament dispensed by the priest, right? That's what they're saying. Most Protestant denominations identify two sacraments instituted by Christ, the Eucharist, or in parentheses, Holy Communion, and Baptism. However, some traditions avoid the word sacrament. That doesn't mean they're not sacraments. They just won't use that word. Reaction against the 19th century Oxford movement led Baptists to prefer instead the word ordinance. Practices ordained by Christ to be permanently observed by the church. If we pay close attention to the language of the catechisms of the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches, we see that they assert that the grace of God and the gift of life are imparted to Christians through their sacraments. Those sacraments, in turn, require the dispensation of a professional priest. I think this went out with the Old Testament, right? However, Paul said in Romans chapter 11, as just one example of his position on sacraments, that now, in this manner, even in the present time, there has been a remnant in accordance with the election of favor or grace. But if in favor or grace, no longer from rituals or works, since favor would no longer be favor. As another example, Paul said in chapter 2 of Ephesians, for in favor you are being preserved through faith, and this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves, not from works or rituals, lest anyone would boast, for his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ Yahshua for good works, which Yahweh before prepared in order that we would walk in them. Good works is love for your brother, care for your community. We will see that before the end of this evening. We have demonstrated at length, last night, in fact, in our recent presentation of Galatians chapter 2, that wherever Paul referred to the works of the law, he was describing the rituals and ceremonial ordinances associated with the Levitical priesthood. Paul taught that all of these things were done away with in exchange for the faith in Christ under the new covenant, and not in exchange for any new set of works 
for any new set of rituals. He said it's not from works, lest anyone would boast. There is no conflict in the writing of Paul. Rather, if there is a conflict, it is in the words of the professional priesthoods, which insist on keeping men bound to the works and the traditions of men. We would, of course, agree with the Wikipedia explanation of the Last Supper, where it is said that Christ had given his disciples bread and wine during the Passover meal, and that Christ commanded his followers to partake of it and to do this in memory of me, while referring to the bread as his body and the wine as his blood. There's no doubt that he did those things. However, we would disagree with the idea that Christ instituted this as a mandatory ritual, and we shall explain our position on this and on what true Christian communion should be as we proceed here this evening. But first, we shall address baptism. Because it has been mentioned here in these definitions of these sacraments, in addition to the communion ritual, as being another sacrament necessary for the salvation of Christians. There are people who refer to the first, the account of the first Christian Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the encounter of Philip with the eunuch described in Acts chapter 10. And for those reasons, they insist that all Christians should be baptized in water even going to the extreme and asserting that there is no salvation for Christians who are not baptized in water. In fact, when I um, addressed the idea of communion at this church back in June, I think it was in June, I'm pretty sure, the one church member said to me, well, we can't even have communion unless we're baptized. Wow. He didn't even get what I said about communion, I, I don't think. And we'll hear that tonight. Those people who insist that water baptism is necessary to a man's salvation ignore two things. First, they ignore the fact that the book of Acts is a record of a learning process for the apostles so that they could transform their own worldview from the works of the law in Moses to the promise of the faith in Christ. Proof enough that the book of Acts is indeed a book of transition is found in Acts chapter 10, where several years after the first Christian Pentecost, Peter still required a vision in which he was instructed by the Spirit of Yahweh. If Peter's knowledge of the gospel and the meaning and application of the New Testament were perfect after he spent three and a half years with Christ during his earthly ministry, then he would not have needed that vision. The vision in Acts chapter 10 proves that Peter's education was still ongoing at that point. He was still learning.
more proof is found in the account of Acts chapter 15, where the apostles at Jerusalem decided in favor of Paul and Barnabas in their dispute with the Pharisees, as they had been disputing over the um, rituals of the law and the circumcision in Antioch. And the apostles said precisely what should be told to new Christians, that they should abstain from fornication, from things strangled, and blood. There's nothing there that requires them to perform any communion ritual in those instructions. There's nothing there that requires them to be water baptized in those instructions. If Christians had to be water baptized, if Christians had to partake in some sort of weekly communion ritual, don't you think it would have been in Acts chapter 15? In Acts chapter 11, Peter professed the realization, this is after Acts chapter 2, this is after the first Pentecost, this is after he converts the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, this is after Philip baptizes the eunuch in water in Acts chapter 10. After that, we have a progression here. We have a progression of a transformation from the rituals of the Old Testament to the faith of the New. In Acts chapter 11, Peter professed the realization that the household of Cornelius had received the gift of the Holy Spirit without having been baptized in water. This singular account proves that the catechisms of the Roman Catholic and the Anglican churches are wrong in this regard. They are dead wrong. Perhaps those documents, those catechisms, perhaps they should be called cataschisms. The word cataschism would, would mean in Greek, according to divisions because that is what they have created, catechisms. Peter, realizing his previous misconception of the efficacy of water baptism, then exclaimed, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 16, then remembered I, the word of the Lord, how that he said, John, indeed, baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, as the King James has it. And indeed, we see that Christ had instructed the apostles from the beginning, after his resurrection, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, that John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. It took Peter nearly 11 chapters of Acts, and that may have spanned a period as long as 12 years 
because it is 12 years from the resurrection to the death of Herod Agrippa I, which is recorded at the, Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 12. Here we are in Acts chapter 11, which can't be too much longer before Acts 12, right? It took Peter nearly 12 years and 11 chapters of Acts to realize the meaning of the words of Christ recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 1. From that point on in Scripture, chronologically, from that point on, water is no longer mentioned in connection with baptism. We see the same thing, the same promise, mentioned even earlier in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, where John the Baptist himself is recorded as having said, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he, referring to Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So the words of Christ in Acts chapter 1 were prophesied by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 and elsewhere. And in fact, in the closing verses of Acts chapter 18, we see the result of Peter's realization. Aquila and Priscilla, or Aquila and Priscilla, meet for the first time with a man named Apollos, who is described as being instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And when they heard him preaching, because of this, because he knew only of the baptism of John, Aquila and Priscilla had heard, and they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So the baptism of John is not the perfect way of the Lord. Rather, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That's the baptism that he had to be baptized in, which he discusses in Luke, long after he was baptized in water. That's the baptism we need to be baptized in as Christians. Regardless of how the apostles had interpreted it at first, the Greek word, baptizo, it's a verb, by itself does not mean, I don't care what the lexicon say, by itself the word does not mean to be immersed in water. Because one can be immersed in a host of things. The verb only means to immerse in something, and one can be immersed in many things. According to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, for examples, and there are many more, Plato, in his writing, used the term baptizo of something which was immersed in wine. Plutarch the ancient Greek historian, he used the word to describe someone who was immersed in debt, in usury. 
Christ never told his apostles to go forth and baptize people in water. Rather, he told them to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean baptizing them in water in the name of the Father and the Son. It means baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 28. People that want to uphold the baptism ritual read water into that, but the word water is not there. Being baptized in his name does not necessarily have anything to do with water. I've heard people claim that one cannot be baptized with the Holy Ghost unless one is first baptized with water. That assertion would make the Apostle Peter a liar, since Peter explicitly testified in Acts chapter 11 that those of the nations indeed received the Spirit without having been baptized in water. That assertion would also make Paul a liar. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Not two. There being one baptism, I'll give you a choice. You can be baptized in water, or you can be baptized in the Spirit of God. In the name of Christ, you should rather choose the Spirit and put aside the water. There's one baptism. We have already treated baptism at length in a paper and a subsequent podcast found at Christiania entitled Baptism in Blood. We've treated it at length in our presentation on Acts, the apostles, the Acts of the Apostles two years ago. And here we believe that we have discussed it sufficiently once again. So now we will turn our discussion to the second Protestant so-called sacrament, which is referred to as communion, or more officially by them as the Eucharist, or the Holy Communion. There is a Greek word, koinonia, Strong's number 2842, which the Bell and Scott define as communion, association, partnership, or fellowship. Communion, as in community, an association of individuals living together. Communion as a partnership, two or more individuals engaged in something together. Likewise with fellowship. So with that, we know what communion means. The King James Version sometimes translates koinonia as communion, actually on three occasions. But on 12 occasions, it translates the same word as fellowship. And on other occasions, in various other ways. There's another noun, koinonus. Koinonus is, in the King James Version, translated variously as partner, partaker, companion, or fellowship. And those translations, for the most part, are appropriate. The verb form of the same word is 
koinoneo, Strong's number 2841. Koinoneo is, is defined by Liddell and Scott as to have or do in common with, to have a share of or take part in a thing with another. Discussing these terms, I said in my essay, Broken Cisterns, Part 2, written in 2005, that to limit this idea to some wafer and a weekend and holiday ritual is pure blasphemy. For the Christian should live his entire life in communion, but in communion with his brethren. That was written 10 years ago this summer, and I stand by those words today. In the scripture, it is clear that communion is fellowship, and fellowship is communion. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read about the new converts which were made by the apostles during the first Christian Pentecost. And it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That word fellowship is koinonia. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. So we see that koinonia, which is sometimes translated as communion in the King James, is translated here as fellowship in the King James. And for this purpose, all these quotes are going to be from the King James. In the scripture, it is clear that communion is also voluntary contribution. We shall offer several examples, all from the King James. First, from Romans 15.26, where Paul wrote, For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And that word for contribution is koinonia. By making contributions to the needy or to the worthy, you are having communion with those people. It's an act of communion. Then again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift, meaning the gift of the collection for the saints, which Paul is taking up, and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And that word fellowship is koinonia, the same word translated communion. And for our final example, because there are more, 2 Corinthians 9.13. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. That word, distribution, is koinonia. The gift is an act of fellowship or communion. And the scripture is clear that communion is also, it's not only um, 
the fellowship of of money or of physical things or of one's needs. It's also a working together towards a common goal. This is evident where Paul uses the word in Galatians 2.9. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the nations and they under the circumcision. That word fellowship is again koinonia. There's no goods or, or, or support or, or donations being exchanged there. It's the right hands of fellowship in the working towards a common goal in the gospel. In the scripture, it is clear that an acceptance of the gospel by the lost sheep of the house of Israel, of course, is also a form of communion. And we shall offer three scriptures which substantiate that assertion. First, there is Philippians chapter 1, where Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. And then in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And that word fellowship is koinonia or communion. Then there is Philippians 3.10 where he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Of course, a reference to Christ. And the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, because we as Christians and as Israelites should all share in his sufferings. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And our final example is found in Philemon, in verse 6, where Paul said that the communication of thy faith may become effectual, by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The communication of thy faith, the sharing of your faith might have effect with other of your brethren. The communication of thy faith, the koinonia of thy faith. Three times the word koinonia is translated as communion in the King James Version of the Bible. First, there is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be ye not unequally yoked, and I'll quote the King James, even though I hate to hear. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And in that verse, that word communion is, once again, koinonia. And it also means fellowship. The word translated fellowship earlier in that verse is from a different verb. Met, met echo. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And of course, the communion 
of the Holy Spirit is something that Christians share in common. It should give Christians fellowship and association. It should bind us together to one another. The communion or koinonia of the Holy Spirit. And these first two examples, koinonia, can only mean fellowship. As we have seen, that the King James Version has translated the same word as fellowship in so many other places. Therefore, we must recognize that the meaning of koinonia is fellowship, and that communion is fellowship. And it is never used in the Bible. Not one time is it used in Scripture, ever, as a word which defines or describes a formal ritual conducted by a priest. It was the 300 years after Christ. It was the pagan priesthood of ancient Rome which had adapted the idea of sacramentalism in Christianity. The idea, there goes my New Jersey accent. And had first transformed communion from what things the Christian community had shared in common into a formalized ritual. They actually made communion anti-Christian. The third place where the word koinonia is translated as communion in the King James Version of the Bible is in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. And Paul, it, it is the only place in Scripture where the word koinonia is associated with bread and wine. And Paul wrote from verse 16, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the koinonia, the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion, the koinonia, of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Right there, in verse 17, Paul describes what he meant by that word communion. We are all partakers of that one bread, meaning that we all share it in common, not in a ritual, not in a priesthood ritual or rite or sacrament. We all share the bread in common. Now, the word partakers... In that verse, it's also from the Greek verb met-echo, which is basically, basically met-echo means to have together, to have something with someone else. So Paul says we are all partakers of that one bread. That's the communion, to have something together with someone else. All of the lost sheep of his Israel are the partakers of the body and blood of Christ. 
they have it together with the other lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why it's called koinonia. That's the communion. That's what Paul is saying very clearly. It has nothing to do with a ritual in a church. Never. All of Christian Israel has communion in Christ because the real body and the real blood of Christ are not the bread and the wine, but the children of Israel themselves, the people sitting around the table, and communion is the fellowship which they should have with one another, with the wine and the bread. And that's symbolic of the body and blood of Christ, which they all share. They're sharing it in common. That's the communion not the ritual. The bread and the wine are the objects of the communion. They are not the communion. The objects of the communion, and the communion is the fellowship which the members of the body of Christ should have with one another. Paul explains this fellowship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But first, there is some historical context required to understand Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't understand the historical context, you will be lost. And it's simple. It was customary in the pagan temples <coughs> excuse me, for participants to feast with gluttony and intoxication and all sorts of lascivious acts of immorality had rather typically accompanied that gluttony in the pagan temples. Many of the Christian Corinthians were formerly pagans, and they took the practice of feasting into their gatherings in the Christian assemblies. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is upbraiding them for that because he saw it to be wrong. Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, this is the King James Version, I hear that there be divisions among you, and partly I believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, or sects among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And then in verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Remember that Wikipedia definition of the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, how it is also called the Lord's Supper? Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When you come together, therefore, into one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before others his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. 
This feasting, which Paul addressed here, is a remnant of the pagan temple practices that some of the Christians were maintaining in the Christian Sabbath assemblies. And Paul says, when you come, therefore, together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholics, the Anglican churches, they are wrong about the Eucharist. Paul then said, in response to this feasting, from 1 Corinthians 11.22, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? So therefore, the Lord's Supper is to be eaten in our houses, not in a church. And he continues. He continues by saying, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. I don't care if you want to think that a priest giving out these stupid little wafer hosts makes sure that everybody gets the same amount of food. That's ridiculous. That's not the solution. Paul tells us the solution. Go eat and drink in your houses because it is not to eat the Lord's Supper when you come together into one place. So the scriptural solution is Paul's solution not the stupid little paper wafers. The church was not gathered to the Lord's Supper. Therefore, communion was something to be conducted outside of the regular assembly meetings. So why did Christians start going to church for communion? Paul is about to describe the fellowship of the body of Christ. But that does not mean that it is to be conducted in the assembly, since he just told them to eat and to drink in their houses. So when we read these next verses, don't imagine that Paul changed his mind. He continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take this, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This you do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, that's important, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This you do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, Christ did these things, which Paul describes, at a Passover meal, prepared in a private home, at a dinner with his friends and family. Yes, some of those men were his half-brothers, his friends and family, who were his associates. That word Paul used for supped in verse 25 is the Greek word dipneo, Strong's number 1172. And dipneo, there's many Greek words which describe eating. I think the last time I counted, there were 
18 verbs that described the act of eating in Greek, and they all have different shades of meaning. Of meaning. The word dipneo means to take the chief meal of the day, as Liddell and Scott define it. There were other words which meant to eat breakfast or just to snack or to devour and, and rend and, and different other shades of meaning. Some of the words that their meaning is ambiguous and they really can't be told apart from other verbs. But dipneo is a specific verb. It means to take the chief meal of the day. In other words, dipneo means to eat dinner in modern English. So he took the bread and broke it, and then he took the cup when he had eaten dinner. Paul, referring to the Passover meal, which Christ celebrated with his disciples, certainly used an appropriate verb. But Paul tells these Christians to do this in their houses, not in the assembly. The context has not changed since verses 20 and 22, where Paul expects these things to be done at home. When you come together in one place, it is not to eat Lord's Supper. Note that Paul said in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread, he's not talking about special Passover bread. The word used to describe this last meal that Christ had with his, with his apostles, the word used for bread throughout those passages and here in 1 Corinthians is the word artus. Artus is a loaf of wheat bread. That's what it describes primarily. That's why very often in the Christian New Testament, it's translated as wheat bread or wheat loaf or something like that. And, and that's just to show that this is not anything special. It's describing an ordinary loaf of bread. The same type that the Greeks used in their meals every day. Or the Hebrews or the Romans. I'm sure you can't find anything so good now. Maybe some GMO stuff. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Paul said, after he had told them to eat in their houses, he said that. This refers not only to some Sunday dinner event or even to some Passover meal. Rather, as often as you eat means that every dinner a Christian has in common with his family or friends should be eaten in memory of Christ. It's a daily thing. As for the Christian assembly, Paul describes why Christians should gather in assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine, has a tongue 
or a language, has a revelation, has an interpretation. There ain't nothing there about a ritual or a host or a bottle of wine or a loaf of bread. Let all things be done unto edifying. The only conclusion relevant to Paul's explanation is this. Christians do not gather in assembly for communion. Rather, Christians have communion in their homes. This is the only place in the scripture where koinonia is used in reference to this. In the later verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians that they must distinguish themselves and not eat with anyone who is unworthy of fellowship. Then he closes by saying, Consequently, my brethren, gathering in to eat, you await one another. Gathering in to eat, you await one another. That statement does not negate the fact that Paul had already said that when you come together into one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And then, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? He's telling them not to eat in the Christian assembly hall, but to eat later in your houses and await one another so that there are no gluttons and so that people share ostensibly. So we see that Christian fellowship is something to be done apart from the regular gatherings of the assembly, which, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, are for spiritual edification, not for edification of the body. You have houses in which to eat and to drink. This should prove beyond doubt that there is no valid communion ritual to be conducted in a church. The example of Christ was to have a Passover meal in a private house with his friends and family. And that is also the insistence of Paul of Tarsus here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That we should eat and drink in his memory at home, not the church. The ritual is an invention of the professional priesthood and nothing more. As a digression, this is only a digression, we should make a note about eating with strangers because Paul also remarks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we just discussed at length. And actually, there are three places in Scripture to go to, in order to show why we should not eat with strangers or with aliens in the New Testament, besides the um, passage in Mark about throwing pearls to swine. The first of these we shall mention is in the Epistle of Jude, where he mentions spots 
in our feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. And in that context, Jude was not talking about the children of God, but about, quote-unquote, certain men who crept in unawares. Then there was chapter 2 of the epistle, the second epistle of Peter, where he discusses certain natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, who speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. And then he calls them cursed children. And like Jude, Peter was also discussing infiltrators into the body of Christ, those whom Christ himself said were not my sheep. They are spots in our feasts of charity. They are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. And a third of these examples is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we shall read from verse 27. But because the King James translation is so poor, particularly with one word, in these particular verses, I shall read them from the Christiania New Testament. Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself and thus, from of the wheat bread let him eat, and from of the cup let him drink. For he that is eating and drinking eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. For this reason, there are among you many feeble and sickly, and plenty have fallen asleep. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, we would not be judged. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned for the society. Consequently, my brethren, gathering in to eat, you await one another. There are two Greek verbs of import in this passage, krino and diakrino, or diakrino. The first verb is commonly to judge. Well, the second verb is to distinguish or to make a distinction. And the King James Version has it correctly in verse 29 as to discern. But then they made a serious error in verse 31. They probably just couldn't figure out what Paul was saying. It should have been translated likewise because they are both diacrino not discerning the body of Christ in these contexts is to mistake the spots in one's feast of charity for the legitimate members of the body. And Christians are even more guilty of that now than they have ever been. But Paul is telling us to distinguish or to discern the body because not Everybody is a member of the body of Christ, only the lost sheep of the house of Israel.
So that's a warning issued by Paul. And the King James Version corrupts it. True Christians have communion in whatever things Christian men and women hold in common. We quoted from Acts chapter 2 in brief a little earlier in this presentation. Here is a fuller citation where Luke describes the assembly which the apostles gathered from the first Christian Pentecost, from Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, or koinonia, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. That word is another word, which is actually closer to the root of the word koinonia. That word is koinus. It's an adjective. And sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, not in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved, breaking bread from house to house. The Greek word koinos is primarily, as Gell and Scott define it, common, shared in common, common to all the people. The word coin in English, the common currency, the coin, that's what it means. It comes from that word koinos. The word coin as coin Greek, it should actually be koine Greek, means common Greek. The same dialect of Greek spoken by all the people, as opposed to the older dialects of Greek, which belonged more exclusively to the Athenians or to the Dorians or to the Aheolians. So koinos means common. That's the word where we see in Acts 2.44 that they had all things in common. It's the same word from which we get, from which the Greeks derived the word koinonia, which is communion. And therefore, we see that properly, Christian communion, or koinonia, is what Christian men share in common, which is what is coyness amongst Christians. This same concept is clearly evident again in Acts chapter 4, where it says in verse 32, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them 
that ought or that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And the word is coinous. And that's the, the, the lesson of how Christians should treat each other at the Sermon on the Mount. If your brother needs something, just give it to him. Don't expect it back. Just give it to him. Yahweh will look out for you, and you'll get it back in another way, if not from your brother. That's the lesson of the Sermon on the Mount. Another and more immediate example of an act of Christian communion is found when Paul was aboard that ship which was stranded and doomed to wreck, as it is described in Acts chapter 27. He exhorts his fellows aboard the ship and encourages them to take food. This is one small example of a true act of communion at a meal, where it is written, and while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat or to take food, saying, this day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat. For this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread, that word for meat in modern English simply being food. He took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all of good cheer, and they also took some meat, or some of the food, right? And we were all on a ship, 200, threescore, and 16 souls. Paul took the bread, broke it, blessed it, surely gave thanks and praise to God and Christ. Do this in memory of me. Thank the Lord Jesus for your continued existence because, examining the scripture, the continued existence of our race is by the mercy of God. Communion, as it is practiced in reality, is what things Christian men and women share in common with one another on a daily basis, or at least at any time when they are able to have fellowship together. That is true Christian communion. But communion as a sacrament, as it is practiced by the denominational churches, is a meaningless ritual, has no meaning whatsoever, has no efficacy whatsoever. It's horseshit. Christ is our last sacrifice, and after him, no rituals are necessary for salvation. Nothing, not one. And no ritual can have any true efficacy, any real effect in our lives. Maybe it'll make us feel good. God's laughing at you. Rather, what counts is that men in Christ have fellowship with one another and fulfill one another's needs. That is the only true Christian communion which actually matters. And you know what? That's missing from those churches. I was raised a Catholic. All they ever taught was to stuff money in the envelope for the priest because the church had needs. To hell with the people 
and how they treated each other. They all felt good when they swallowed their stupid little host. They thought they were saved, and they went home, and they proceeded to screw each other all week. But they were saved because they ate that host. Right. They were destroying each other and feeding some fat, rich, phony bastard in Rome as well as in the local rectory. The Apostle James said that faith without works is dead. And he was not talking about meaningless rituals, but rather he meant true Christian communion, where he said in his epistle, what does it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he has faith and not, does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. In other words, don't say to your brother, be safe, go, be warm and filled. You can't say that to your brother. You've got to feed him if he's hungry. If he has need, true Christian works and true Christian communion require that you, if you have, you use it to fulfill his need. Whenever it is believed that rituals such as baptism in water or the Eucharist in the church are necessary for salvation, that is really a choice of form over substance. The substance matters. The form does not matter. We have spoken of this at length in several times in recent years, and we shall recount a couple of those occasions here. First, from, from the July 5th, 2013 presentation we did of Acts chapter 8, where, for our introduction, we wrote in retrospect concerning the week before's presentation of Acts chapter 7. And this is what we said, because we're describing Stephen's appeal to his countrymen before they killed them, right? In Acts chapter 7, we saw Stephen make an appeal to his fellow countrymen in defense of the new Christian creed. His appeal was based on the life of Moses, who was, at this time, presumably, next to Yahweh God himself, the most venerated figure in the history of Israel. Stephen's appeal included a description which explains the reason why Moses was chosen for the mission which God provided him because he displayed a greater care for the people of his own race than he did for his high station in life, 
which was provided by the Egyptians. In fact, Moses' care for his own race exceeded any care that they may have had for themselves. Saying these things, Stephen explains that Moses risked his own station and his worldly comforts for his brethren, even in spite of his brethren. And that for this reason, it was by Moses that Yahweh God chose to have Israel delivered from Egypt. Stephen described how this Moses spoke of a prophet to come. Which is Yahshua Christ. Note the final commandment given by Christ to his students was to love their brethren. But Stephen also explained how the people rejected Moses in spite of their delivery from Egypt, and how even the success which Israel had from Joshua to David and the building of the first temple in Jerusalem was tainted by their apostasy, for Yahweh, as Stephen explained, had already given them up to worshiping the host of heaven. And the overall point that Stephen was making is that the substance of God's people, Israel, should be revered and not the form, the temple, its adornments, the rituals, and the traditions connected to it, its manner of governance. Those things are the form, the people, the nation one's kindred, and seeking to follow the will of one's God are the substance as opposed to the form. Imagining that salvation may be obtained through the fulfilling of ordinances and rituals leads only to self-justification. The love of one's kindred that leads to the edification of the kingdom of God and to the love of God, provided one abides in that love for his brethren. That's what John's explaining in his first epistle. Then, a year later, almost, from our discussion of Micah chapter 1, given here, in February of 2014, where we discussed Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And Hezekiah was described as a righteous king in part because he had removed the centers of pagan idolatry. And we quoted from 2 Kings chapter 18, where it says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old he was when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that which was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves, and this is the important point right here.
and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan, meaning a thing of brass. He trusted in Yahweh, God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. In response to this passage, back last February, we had written, with this, it is also evident that the children of Israel had for a long time idolized a historical relative, Moses' serpent of brass, and that even good symbols can become idols. The serpent of brass was only an ensign. And when it was made, it represented the healing power of God. But the serpent of brass had no power within itself. This is a trap which our people have always fallen into, to venerate the form of a thing and not the substance which that form represents. The symbol is nothing. What it is that the symbol stands for when it is created or designated is what truly matters. Today, the children of Israel do not literally burn incense to objects, unless, of course, they are Roman Catholics. However, they do the equivalent by making pilgrimages and venerating certain historical sites or objects while at the same time they have abandoned the ideals which those objects once represented. They go to Philadelphia to see the Declaration of Independence, and then they piss all over the ideals of the founders of the nation. We do things like that all the time. The choice of form over substance is the choice of pretenses and appearances over putting one's faith into employment through actual good works. Only dummies who are more concerned with appearances could ever really believe that baptism rituals or communion rituals could effect salvation. When we choose form over substance, we only justify ourselves, and we have a false sense that somehow we are saved by our rituals. Today, entire communities of white Christians are being devoured by beasts and by government tax collectors, and their baptism and their communion rituals are not saving them from any of the plagues they suffer. However, when we choose the substance over the form, we don't work for ourselves, but rather we work for the body of Christ. And when we all work together for one another as Christ worked for us, only then can we actually have any effect in building the kingdom of God, any effect on our national salvation. Real Christian baptism is being immersed in the death of Christ. 
By that, we put the interests of our brethren ahead of our own personal interests, and we devote our lives to helping the body of Christ as Christ gave his life for us. And that results in real Christian communion. So Christ, Christ had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Likewise, and in that respect, real Christian communion is what we share with our Christian brethren on a daily basis. And as we have seen the Apostle James tell us, that means we impart our goods to our needy brethren or to the good of our Christian community. We do something for the body of Christ, because faith without real works is dead. Paul had written in his epistle to the Philippians, and this is from the Christogenian New Testament, because the King James Version just butchers it. Do all Do all things apart from murmuring and disputing that you would be perfect and with unmixed blood, blameless children of Yahweh in the midst of a race crooked and perverted among whom you appear as luminaries in the society, upholding the word of life for a boast with me in the day of Christ, that not in vain have I run, nor in vain have I labored. And yes, that's what it says in Greek. Christ had said that, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he said, as it is recorded in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give unto you, an eleventh commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For this the Apostle John had later written in his first epistle, in chapter 4, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, giving his life for us, right? We ought also to love one another, giving our lives for each other, devoting our lives to each other. That is real Christian communion. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. We do not love one another in rituals. That is absurd. That is ridiculous. People who rely on rituals only seek their own justification. Priests teach you to require rituals 
so that they can elevate themselves above you and rule over you. That's the lesson throughout the New Testament whenever Paul warned about the Judaizers, that they were looking to tie you to rituals so that they could bind you and enslave you. These Catholic rituals are no different. These Baptists, the, 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 the rituals that the Baptists and the Anglicans have maintained from the Catholics are no different. They enslave you, and you think you have salvation in them, and you have nothing. Rather, we must love one another. And in reality, that is true Christian communion. Every time we express it, Salvation is not through rituals, but through keeping the commandments of God. When we do that, the kingdom of God becomes manifest, and he shall dwell with us. As Christ described in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. That word is actually fatherless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them, is he that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him. And will manifest myself to him. The lesson of the Old Covenant, the entire lesson, was that the children of Israel could not save themselves through rituals. And we pick that idea back up with different rituals in the New Covenant. That is bullshit. Christian communion insists that we keep the commandments of our God. And with that, and love for one another, we have a promise in salvation. There is no salvation in rituals. They have no efficacy in the world. They do nothing for us, but deceive us into thinking that we're saved through them rather than through love and care for one another. I will be here tomorrow afternoon with Sam Longshanks talking about the invasions of Britain then and now, throughout history up to the present day. It's always been out of treachery that England is overrun by whites or otherwise. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh willing. I will be here next Friday with Galatians.
chapter 3. Thank you. 